Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I'm your host, Sourdough, your tireless, trusty, relentless, faithful host coming at you from Crew West Studio here in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a VIP in the house today, the one and only Michael Hawley. Michael, welcome. Hi, how are you? You're classing up the joint, man, where you know, you're bringing the, the cool factor today. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's me. That's what I'm known for. <laughs> the cool factor. Michael Cool Factor Holly. That, that's <laughs> that's <right. laughs> I, I love it. Well, you know what? In all candor, right? I mean, we're we're meeting for the first time. We have a mutual friend, the one and only John Tomko's brought us together. So shout out, John. Thank you for this. But, you know, John and I have been friends for a while. And uh, obviously, you know, when, you know, he's very well aware of the podcast and and we were having lunch the, the other day and he said, man, you got to get Michael on the podcast. I was like, OK, let's do it. <laughs> right. No, he's great. I've, I've known him for as long as I've been here in Los Angeles. He's one of the first people I ever met here. Oh, that's great. So where, where did you hail from? Where did you move from? I was living in New York right before I moved to Los Angeles for about five years. Uh-huh. And um, before that, I was in Northern California. And then I was overseas because I, I grew up overseas, which is another whole story. That's a whole other <laughs> um, podcast. It's <laughs> a whole other podcast. I came to America for college and then just stayed. Got you. Got you. That's great. Well, you're a lucky person, right? To kind of, you know, grow up, be a citizen of the planet. Yeah, I wouldn't trade it. You know, it was, it was a, you know, there was no white picket fence, but there was, you know, camels and you know, sharks. So, so it was, yeah, I grew up all over the place. So it's, I'd seen sort of more things before I was in college than most people get to see. So I'm very fortunate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, our mutual buddy, uh, John Tomko thought we should get together and have you on the show because of your pedigree in photography as chairperson of the Getty uh, Photographs Council. So you've been there about four years I mean, how the heck did you land that job? Who'd you have to pay off? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a long story. I'm also, I was one of the founding members of something called the Photographic Arts Council, okay. which is Los Angeles, Photographic Arts Council, Los Angeles, PAC-LA. Mm -hmm. And that's a nonprofit organization that sort of specializes in appreciation of fine art photography. It's not how to take a picture. It's what is that? beautiful picture on the wall and how did it get there and who bought it and when was it made and how was it made and and sort of developing an appreciation for fine art photography. And so that was, we started off as the support group for LACMA's photographs department. And then Michael Gubbin, the head of LACMA, decided that they didn't need to have these support groups for all the different areas. And so instead of folding, we decided we were going to start a nonprofit and that that became the Photographic Arts Council of Los Angeles. So from that I had been a collector for quite a while and I had a, you know, a growing collection and some of the curators from the Getty came and saw it and thought it was interesting. And the, the way that I collected was interesting and what I collected was interesting and asked me to be part of the photographs council up there at the Getty. And then that went on for a little while. And then I had some ideas about the evolution of their collection 
And they decided to ask me to be the head of their council, which was, you know, had been going for, I think, maybe 10 or 15 years before that, run by wonderful people. And the chairmanship of that rolls over every few years. I've been there longer than I was anticipated because the pandemic stretched out one year into three. Anyway, so I'm up there with them now, and, and I'm still working with the Photographic Arts Council Los Angeles every day, but the Getty thing is, is an ongoing, very interesting thing. And of course, this council, like, I don't decide what the Getty buys. The curators decide what they, what they buy, but we, we give input to, and we give money to decide what, we, we decide what we want to put our money behind mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as a council there. So, so what is it about your eye, uh, you know, that was so distinctive to them, you know, as the folks were admiring your collection as being kind of distinctive and novel, what do you think they saw in your collection that was particularly, you know, proprietary or unique or special to you and your taste? Well, that's a great question. It's, you know, a lot of people have in their minds the idea that you have to collect with a certain theme in mind. Like I have one friend who collects only pictures of birds or another friend collected only Japanese photography or only photography from the 50s or only black and white. And I've always from the very beginning just collected things that move me and things that I want on my wall and to be surrounded by every day. So unlike a lot of collectors, I don't have very much in storage, under beds and flat files. I have almost everything that I have on the walls. I have a lot of walls, but everything I buy, I want to look at. And it's, I, I have never bought anything for sort of investment reasons. Although stuff is, we can talk about this later, but stuff has become much more valuable. But the fact that the collection is not thematic, the fact the collection holds together as I for lack of a better word, like a humanist collection. There's like sort of a stillness about it. There's a lot of portraiture in it. There are pieces that these curators had never seen before, artists that I, that moved me, that I loved, that I bought because I thought the image was was moving or disturbing or or interesting, and they're not necessarily on their radar. So when they came, when curators come to your house and they see stuff that they haven't discovered yet, that it's always a, a good surprise for them. And for me, I get to live with the beautiful pieces. So, you know, and because something I just mentioned before about the fact that I had this bizarre international upbringing, my collection features photographers from many places around the world. And some of the places I've lived and some of the places that I've visited or whatever, you know. So you have some camels in your photography. <laughs> I actually do. I actually do. I have one camel picture by by this Mex- she's a Mexican artist named Graciela Iturbide, and she's she's a great considered a Mexican national treasure. She's a wonderful older woman who is um, extremely influential in the Mexican photography world and and the world in general. She won the Hasselblad Award and is very sort of well respected and collected by almost all the major museums. But she's, she has a little picture of camels that she took in Sultanabad or somewhere in India. Yeah. Well, you know, what I appreciate about how you describe that in terms of your collection, it's sort of the metaphor, I guess, that came to mind. It's that, you know, it seems like your collection is kind of a visual fingerprint of who you are as an individual. I mean, to the extent that you're collecting things that you love with not, you know, the central theme is you, right? Like it's the, you know, and so in totality, it's like a mosaic of like your DNA, you know, artistically, like what's speaking to you. And I can only, you know, speculate that, you know, when smart people looked at it, they said, wow, you know, like that's kind of what resonated. It was a very personal kind of fingerprint of yours, so to speak. I totally agree with that. And it's actually kind of a, on the flip side, it's kind of a tool for me because if somebody wanted to get to know me, they would know me better having walked through this house yes. and looked at the things that I try to collect. Because, you know, if you meet me, I mean, the general public, I'm a very sort of upbeat, kind of cheerful person, but there's a lot of dark stuff in my head and also on my walls yeah. that, you know, just shows another part of me that that you wouldn't necessarily get to know when you by just first meeting me. So yeah, it's, I mean, it works as for people to get to know my taste, what I think is beautiful, but also just a little bit of a window inside of, of other ways that I think. And then it always engenders conversation. You know, people will stop by a photo and, and ask me about it and ask me, you know, why I got it or 
what it means to me all the time it happens. Yeah. Well, no, your explanation sort of really resonates with me because I think I'm very similar to you in that it's, you know, my collection to the extent that I have one is really just a reflection of magical moments where mm-hmm. I saw something that spoke to me, you know, on some, right. you know, visceral, spiritual, intellectual, you know, level. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, I got to have that, you know? And so there's not a, a ongoing theme, but there's probably an ongoing energy field, <laughs> you know, right. like there's a vibe, right. Uh, that's me. Right. right. And, and I, and I suspect yeah. the same is true, you know, with your collection. Right. But you know, it's a funny thing as the collection has grown, it's, I'm more careful about what I buy than I was in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I'll see things in it and I'll say, oh, that's a very interesting photograph, but it doesn't fit in this collection. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so at first, when I first started collecting, it was all about stuff that moved me. Now it's about that, of course, but also about how will this speak to the other images that are around the house? How will the, I mean, that sounds very arty, but <laughs> like it, you don't want to be jarred by something that just seems completely like if I started buying a lot of, you know, I like this artist, but she did, wouldn't like Alex Prager, for example. I don't know if the audience will know that artist. She's very famous color photographer and, um, but her stuff would not go at all in this house. So that's what I mean. It's, it's, I'm more cautious now about what I buy or more thoughtful, not cautious. I think thoughtful. Sounds like you might also need to buy a second house so that you can start a second collection that's very <laughs> different than the one, the one you have. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You know, it's funny because in my entry hall, like when you come in my front door, there's a, a staircase that goes up in a big empty wall that goes from first floor to second floor. It's like an interior courtyard thing. And every single art dealer, every single gallerist who comes to my house looks up at this wall and you can see their eyes getting wider because there's nothing on it at all. And I kind of like that because one of the things about the collection is, as I mentioned, there's this sort of stillness about it. And that has to do with the environment that everything is hung in. And it's very calm. You know, it's a very calm place to be. Yeah. So that requires negative space or empty space. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I totally get that. Um, yeah, it's really neat to see, right? Like how people react, right, to to our love, <laughs> our our passion, yeah. our obsession. Right. Right. So how old were you when you bought your first piece of art? Yeah, that's a story that's probably too oft told by me, but um well, I have when already. I first moved to LA, <laughs> I'll tell it anyway. This is a new audience. Um, so when I first moved to LA, this was 1991. So that's how long ago I've moved here. And I was writing at the time. I was writing a book and, and it wasn't going well. And and I had no money in my, I had this shitty apartment. Sorry. I had this terrible apartment. And this is a podcast. Uh, this, yeah. is a, this is triple X podcast. <laughs> you can cuss all you want. <laughs> You know, like I had to worry about the gas bill and it was just not, things were not going well. And I went to Photo LA, which at the time was at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, which was a big, it was a really big photo show. And it, over the years, it transformed into other things. But at the time it was, you know, there were a lot of dealers there and I just went to see it and I went, was leafing through a bin and you know, they have these, these photographs in cardboard frames kind of, and they're all sort of stacked up in these tabletop bins, like one beside each other, beside the other. And so I was flipping through and I found this one photograph that was by an artist named Dave Heath, H-E-A-T-H Heath. And he, it was beautiful, beautiful photograph of a kid with her hand on her head. It was very close up. And it just, it was so beautiful. And I didn't have any money. I put it on a credit card and I paid it off over a long time. It was, it was $2,000. It's put it there. And I didn't have $2,000. And, and, but I had in my crappy apartment, this one really, really beautiful thing that was on my wall. And I looked at it every day and it may, be, it sounds corny, but it really, it gave me hope. And there wasn't much that was beautiful. I mean, LA is beautiful, right? But there was nothing much in my life that was really working and that was working. And so that was the genesis. That was the seed of this collection. And as time went by and my 
fortunes improved, I was able to spend money on photographs. But I, you know, that said, I didn't buy fancy cars. I didn't buy, like I, I haven't, you know, I spend my money on art, which, you know, my family always makes fun of me for that. But the only significant purchases I've ever made besides buying a house have been art because it's, you know, makes me feel better. And it, it's, but also, you know, the idea of supporting the arts is a really important thing in my life. So anyway, so that was the first piece that I bought. And subsequently, I have three more pieces by that artist in my collection. And, you know, he's my favorite artist. And here's a little bit of a story. It was, I always called it like my burning house photograph, because I, I figured if I was running out of my burning house, I would take that. And so I don't know if you remember, maybe, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago, Griffith Park caught on fire. I live pretty close to Griffith Park. And eventually the firemen came in firefighters came and banged on my door and said, you have to get out. And I took my hard drive and I took that photograph. <laughs> yes. So it really was my, fortunately my house didn't burn down, yes. but I did take it when the fire was, you know, coming down the hill. What is it about that image that's so meaningful to you? Well, it's from a collection that Dave Heath did in 1963 called A Dialogue with Solitude. And it's was a very seminal book for him and for street photography in general. He was, I think, at the time living in Canada, but most of the photographs were taken in New York City around the late 50s. It's black and white. And the subject of that collection is solitude, right? And I live by myself. I'm not lonely, but I'm solitary, right? And I like it. I like living that way. It's like I go to museums by myself. I travel by myself. And this piece was just, it was sort of a a sad, you could look at it in, as a sad piece because it, the kid in the picture looks not very contemplative, but it was, it just had that still thing that I'm talking about. I keep bringing back. It's like, it had this simplicity to it. There's not much going on in the photograph, but in the kid's eyes, there's a lot going on and it's a very, very moving photograph. Mm, mm. Yeah. You know, there's, it is interesting, right? Like what moves us and what haunts us, right? Because there are these stories we all have them of the of the artwork that got away. You know, you 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 talked about you know being broke at that time, but yet you know buying this piece. I have a kind of a similar story in that you know probably nineteen ninety four. I guess I was fresh out of college, Chicago, living downtown, and broke, 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 broke. In fact, the other day I was going through a box of old stuff. And I found an ATM receipt from 1984 for a withdrawal of $5, $5. The fact that you could withdraw $5 out of an ATM, number one, number two, the fact that I thought $5 was going to get me through the day, but that's what it was, right? You, you learn to eat ramen, you learn to, you know, whatever. Anyway, I was at no, the, that's so true. Yeah, right, right. And so poor broke college student or fresh house college. And uh, so I was at this art show somewhere in River North or Wicker Park or something. Anyway, I'll never forget this photograph, black and white photograph that was $250. And the idea that, I, I mean, I just was like, I don't have this money. I should buy this. I'm a Midwest boy. So there's this very like practical sense that I have and I couldn't get out of my own way. I'm like, I don't have $250. I can't. I mean, yes, I do, but I got to pay, you know, nope, I'm not going to buy it. I'm just not going to buy it. And I walked away and it has haunted me ever since. It was a photo sort of taken of two people. The camera angle is kind of behind and over the shoulder of a man holding a baby. And that man was Dr. Kevorkian. Oh. God. And he's holding up and he's holding up this precious little baby, you know, who's smiling. He's smiling. Right. They're having a goo goo gaga moment. And just the juxtaposition <laughs> of those of those Doctor Death people. And baby. Yeah. Anyway, I, I bet so oh, I so wish I had bought that. <laughs> yeah. I'll see if I can find it for yeah, you. Yeah, please. Yeah, get on that, would you? So as chairperson of the Getty Photographs Council, I mean like, what does that really mean? Like, what is your responsibilities? What is a typical year like for you in that position? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that organization is because it's tethered to the Getty. There's a lot of administrative help there. You know, they're wonderful curators. They're very young, but 
wonderful curatorial staff. So they come up with the shows that are going to be shown, and it's usually a couple of years in advance. What happens with the Photographs Council is that they will bring us, the curators will bring us four or five photos by maybe two or three different artists. And we have two meetings a year where this happens. And they present the work. The curators will talk about the works. And we, as a group, have raised a certain amount of money to be spent only on photographs. The curators are going to buy these photographs whether we help them or not. They're going to go into the collection. So we don't, as the council, don't really have a say over what they choose to present. But our say is over whether we like, we think that this particular photograph is worth putting our money behind to put into the collection. They'll all be in the collection, but what do we want our names on? I mean, not my personal name, but like the name of the Photographs Council. And for example, at the very moment at the Getty, there's a show with Carrie Mae Weems and Dowd Bay, two African-American photographers. Their collections are, their presentations are in conversation with one another. And one of the Dowd Bay pictures, and he's a wonderful, based in Chicago, actually, he's a wonderful photographer who does a lot of pictures of society, people in town and kids on the street and stuff, and also some great landscape stuff. And one of the pieces that's in the show right now is there because we put the money in to buy it. So I help coordinate the group of people that are in this council and we meet and we we talk about the photographs and then decide what to do. And then we, we sometimes go on trips and stuff, but the organization that is way more boots on the ground is the Photographic Arts Council, which does about 40 events a year. And that's like studio walkthroughs and, and visits to galleries with the curators and visits to artists and um, artist talks and so, stuff like that. And that's... See, the Getty is, is a little... I love working with them. It's a little ivory tower-ish because, you know, there's a, a financial it's, barrier No, no, to it's entry. literally an, an ivory tower on a hill. It is an ivory tower. <laughs> literally. Right? You prop us on the hill. But it, it's wonderful. And But you have to, I mean, you like they want people on the council who have a photograph background, background in collecting or in production of photography or whatever. So whereas the Photographic Arts Council is for anybody who's interested in photography, like who's interested in learning about fine art photography. So it's much more broad and many more members. Like the Council of the Photographs Council is, I think, about 28 members. And PAC-LA has, you know, 250 members or something like that. You know, I just kind of, I'm really tall and I kind of like stand around and look important. And, and um, <laughs> That's about it, especially at the Getty. <laughs> well, that reminds me of the old saying, you know, remember the owl who's yes. in the tree, looks wise, says nothing, and gets away with it. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. The Sphinx has no secret, right? Yeah. That, that, um, <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, so, I mean, there's so much mm. to talk about. Well, I, I, yeah. I'm curious, though, you know, you're a collector of photography. Do you shoot as right. well? No, I used to as a kid, but I really don't. I mean, there's so many people that are so much better than I am. So I fall in the collector, supporter role of photography. And I think it's a really important thing in sound. I don't know if this is the right thing to say, but it's like it's in society for people to be philanthropic and to support the arts. I think it's extremely important. And also there's, you know, there's so much wonderful art that in the right hands can be stewarded and can be shepherded into to be seen by the right people or being seen by a, a broader audience and also can be taken care of you know like as a collector i think it's really important that i frame the stuff right and i make sure that it's not in the light and that that you know in a hundred years it still looks as good as it does today and i really kind of take that role seriously of protecting and, and cataloging organizing and, and making sure that the art is safe you know, well, you're a shepherd, um, right? You're shepherding yeah. <laughs> your flock, right? Exactly, exactly. It's um, custodian. And it's, I guess and it's is another actually, word for it. Yeah, right. A custodian is a. I, I like that word best, actually. And I think that in addition to that, it's really fun too, because you, you're almost like on a quest all the time to find something that fits in, something that you haven't seen before, work by an artist that you didn't know existed. Let's say you know the artist, but you didn't, you weren't familiar with the particular piece that, that you come across. And so that makes me go to places to look for the art. Like I go to art fairs and just a, a fun time on, on that quest to find the art. 
It's treasure hunting. It's great. You know, you're a it's a little hunter. bit treasure hunting. You know, like I sound like, I don't know, like, you know, my diamond shoes are too tight. Right? So it's like, <laughs> oh, I got to go to Paris to look for photographs. But I'm just really, really fortunate that I get to do that, that it's something that, you know, I could be doing other things, but this is something that I really enjoy doing. And then once you have the piece in hand, then it's up to you to keep it safe. And the idea of like philanthropy in general support, like I have one friend who's on the, one of the councils with both councils with me actually, and she only collects living artists. She changed her focus because she was collecting stuff that she really loved. But then she said, I'm only collecting living artists now to support them. Yes. So, so the money goes directly into their pocket, which I love. I mean, that's a great idea. Yeah. It's such an interesting conversation in terms of how artists, well, the kind of support artists need and how we can, you know, lift them up in a way that makes sense. But I don't want it to sound, I mean, from what I just said, it sounds really elitist, but, you know, anybody can be a collector of beautiful things. For example, the Magnum, the big, I don't know if people, everybody knows what that is. It's Magnum is a big photographic stock house. It's been around since, I think, since the, the 40s or 30s. And newspapers, like artists will sell their work or have their work with, Mag, they'll be a Magnum photographer and they'll be shooting at the Spanish Civil War or they'll be, you know, throughout history, the Second World War, these Magnum photographers. And what Magnum does now is that they offer these, you know, very famous photographers work, very small a size, maybe it's like six inches or seven inches square, photographs for $100. So you can get a famous, famous photographer's work Granted, it's a large edition, but if you're interested in being a collector, you can have this stuff for a relatively low amount of money. And also, you know, you can go, a lot of people collect vernacular photography, which is just photographs that taken of, like this kind of stuff that you'd find in your grandmother's attic right, of right, you, right, you right, and right, right. Right. Sits, right? Um, but you go to the Rose Bowl and there'll be stacks and stacks of these kind of photos that you could go through and buy for, you know, 10 photos for a dollar or whatever, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then put them in a frame. I mean, there's many, many ways to sort of, to satisfy this thing. It's not, it doesn't have to be, you know, the Acropolis on the Hill or spending, you know, $50,000 on a photograph, which I don't do, but yeah. Yeah. Well, it, you know, but the word, the word, you know, you're hitting the nail on the head, you know, for us here at Not Real Art, because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all about democratization of art and increasing accessibility to the arts. And I think, you know, the art world, so-called art world has done artists a uh, disservice and actually have done the Commonwealth a disservice by constantly framing the conversation of art buying within, within the context of collecting or collection, right? You know, that sounds a little elitist. That sounds expensive at the very least, you know, and at the end of the day, right, and, and, you know, most artists will tell you, right, they just want people to enjoy their art and buy it and take it and hang it on their wall. Because at the end of the day, art is a horrible investment. <laughs> Don't ever think you're going to get an economic return on that art buying. It's very rare. And so what is it? It's almost a, a spiritual purchase, right? Like it's a purchase that feeds the soul and the spirit. And if we did a better job of creating a narrative within the marketplace or within the Commonwealth that says, no, 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 art is a wellness product. Art is a health and wellness product. You know, buy that piece you love. It, you know, it could, doesn't have to be, it could be 50 bucks, a hundred bucks, you know, uh, right. a couple hundred bucks, whatever. If you like it. Right. You know, it's, I often think about it in the same way that everyone loves to be told a story, right? Everyone loves to be told, when, like we, as children, our parents read us storybooks and we'd love to, even grownups will sit around and listen to somebody tell a story. And, and that oral, sort of oral tradition is, has all but disappeared for adults. But with each photograph that I have, I don't know 100% what's going on in that photograph, right? But I make it up. And it's really good for one's, not just one's appreciation of beauty or curiosity about the piece, right? But it makes your mind go into a story and you, you make up, it, it's great for the imagination. And I think each piece is almost like a little window and you can stand in front of them and just look at them or even just, you know, close your eyes and think about it later, you know, when, when you've seen it. Like I have ones that's right across the street, across the, the room from me here. And no, let's talk about the one that you can see right okay. behind me. Yep. 
Um, this is a piece by, um, then I'm sorry that the listeners can't see this, but it's a picture taken by an artist named Alan Frame. And it's a couple, a man and a woman in a room that's, there's a very large window with a curtain. It's a black and white photograph. And it looks like a, it's actually taken in Mexico, but it's, um, it looks like a European, large European room with a huge high ceiling and they're just talking. And one of them's head is bent forward and the other one is listening. And you don't quite know what's going on, but it's called something like Paolo and Francesca in the room in Mexico City in 1980 or something like that. That's the name of the piece. And I saw this piece at a gallery years and years and years ago, and it was sold out. No, I couldn't get it anywhere. And then it popped up at an auction. So I bought it because I love the narrative that's going on in this picture, that this sort of tension between the couple that's in the room, have they had a fight? You know, are they mourning somebody? What has gone on in this picture? And I look at it all the time. As you can see, it's right behind my desk, right? So it's, I mean, every time I'm on the Zoom, I can see it, um, <laughs> which is the story of my life lately. But yeah, so that's a good example. And, and, and there's one across the room, which is by a Mexican artist with, of a woman who's like, she's a Oaxacan woman who's the butcher in town and she's got a knife in her teeth and she's pulling the leg of a goat. So she's the butcher. So she's actually doing her work, but the picture is, it looks violent, but it's not, it's a woman working. Right. right? And it's kind of a, a great story. Yeah. So each, it, each it's part of what I appreciate about your story that I, I want to make, uh, I want to tease out a little bit because, you know, this gets back to, you know, one of the narratives that we're trying to create to empower people around the arts, you know, is to say, you know what, you are the art expert. You are the art expert. In other words, you know what you like, you know, your favorite colors, you know, what speaks to you, you know, don't buy into this narrative that you've got to pay some fancy consultant to tell you what to buy. There are amazing working, living artists in your backyard. You know, go meet them, go st on studio visits because you will find something you love and you are the art expert for yourself, right? And I think that that's just, you know, one of the narratives I always like to talk about. And, you know, you kind of, you know, knew that intuitively and, and had that confidence for whatever reason. It was maybe, you know, you you grew up around the world, you you know had maybe a certain amount of access or learning education. So you you felt confident in your ability to say, I love that photo. I want that photo. I'm going to buy that photo. You know, recently there was a story on NPR. It was uh, like an audio kind of a little mini podcast thing that I was listening. And I, it caught my attention because it was the title of it was I think it was something as simple as like how to look at art. Right. And of course, it caught my attention. I thought, okay, interesting. Let me look at this. Listen to this. And it was uh, obviously very well produced, very well written. You know, journalists, uh, you know, talking to a gallerist, talking to a curator, talking to, I think, also a collector. And the long story short is that, you know, this little 15-minute kind of segment, you know, it was kind of depressing for me. Because what I realized was that, you know, I would, I guess I would like to think your average NPR listener would feel fairly confident in their aesthetic choices or in their taste or in their ability to like go to a museum. But upon listening to this story, what was apparent to me was that they implied with the story that people are terrified almost to go into a museum because they don't trust that they know enough or that they will understand or they will be able to enjoy, you know, because we've built up this mystique or whatever, right, around artists and art and, and how to look at art or appreciate art. And it just, you know, it, it was like, wow, you know, things are actually maybe a little worse than I thought when it comes to accessibility and democratization. People really feel like, you know, that they're handicapped on some level and not smart enough, not rich enough, whatever. And, you know, that's just a narrative that, you know, I'm guessing the Getty has to deal with too. I mean, how do we get people to come into the doors, you know? Right. I mean, it, but the first thing I think about is that, you know, there used to be a lot more school programs to send kids to, to museums and they still do, of course, but, but there's, you know, with all cutbacks and stuff, the art programs are canceled and buses to the museums are canceled. But I was at LACMA recently and there was a, a docent with a bunch of little kids. And I think they were probably like nine and they were all sitting cross-legged in front of a, a painting. 
And the docent was talking to them about the painting, but asking them what they see, what they're interested in. And the innocence and the sort of the instinct of the children was to spot things and to look for faces and to imagine stuff that was going on in the in the painting. And I think if grown-ups were able to tap into that curiosity that they did have, all of them had as children, then they would be less scared of this crap that's thrown at people like, you're not allowed to go shut up at the museum, don't ask questions. And that, that goes to galleries too. I mean, a lot of people are afraid to walk into a gallery because they're afraid that the snooty person behind the desk will tell them to leave or they're going to say something that they think is dumb or whatever it is. My experience after having seen that happen many times is to tell people a few things. Like one is the gallerist who's selling, say, the photographs has hundreds of photographs in their flat files that they haven't sold in, in years and that they might have for $200. And that you have to just say, you know, I'm a beginning collector. I want to find some art that moves me. And what do you have? And they say, well, I only have this thing for $4,000. But if you say, can I pay for that over like six months? They'll say yes. They'll always say yes. And they'll work with you to help you get that art as part of your uh, part of your life. I think that like the democratization of art is, I love that concept. It's harder to do because of the fear that has been drilled into people about sort of art belonging to different classes, right? I think it's a terrible thing, but I think it's it's a very hard thing to sort of cycle out of the culture. But that said, I encourage people to just jump in and just look, look at stuff and go and see as much as they can. Because a lot of these museums have free days. They have some evenings they're open and there's also music playing or whatever it is. And you can have access to this art. I was in a on a panel once and I was talking to this, some person at, in from the audience asked a question about, you know, I don't know what to do when I go into a gallery. And, and there was a, a gallerist on the, they asked me the question and I, and I softballed it to this gallerist. And she said, well, don't even bother coming in unless you have like $5,000 to spend and know about the art that you're about to look at, which I think is just total crap. And so I went back at her and I was like, that's ridiculous. How do you expect people to evolve as appreciators of art? And anyway, so we went back and forth, but I'm, I'm just like a real firm believer that art is for everyone. And, you know, here in LA, just look around, look at the murals. Look, you could go on a tour, you could a self-guided tour of all the murals on the walls of buildings that are just painted by people. They're beautiful. It's like one of the, my highlights of Los Angeles is, are the painted murals on the walls. And, you know, the Getty is free and there's a fantastic, if you're, they're very focused lately on the diversity of their collection. And right now this, the collection that I mentioned up there, the Dowd Bay and Carrie Mae Weems is free and wonderful. And so I don't know, it's available and it's for you. So go do it. Don't be afraid. That's the no fear part. Yeah, I mean, I this is anecdotal, but just based on my experience, I mean, it strikes me that there's way more art out there priced between a hundred bucks and five thousand bucks than five thousand right. and above. And you know, right. if if more people, you know, if we were just able to spread some of these little golden nuggets of knowledge of you know, maybe people would start to feel like they could participate, right? Because you know, it's supposed to be a collaboration between people. And yeah, it's but also one of one of the real joys though of being a collector is that I've gotten to meet so many artists and they're mm. wonderful and they want to meet you. You know, they're interested in the people who are interested in their work and who get it or are curious about it. Well, anytime, you know, I hear people talk about, you know, their collection and meeting artists and the joys of collecting, you know, I can't help but think about was it the Vogels out of New York? The old couple? Yeah, the old couple, right? They, it was Vogels, right? Or was it Fogel? I think it was right. Yeah. I think it's V. I think it's the V. Okay. Okay. Well, they yeah, Vogel. So what a beautiful story, right? I mean, literally, she was a librarian. He's a, a postal worker, I think. Their joy was art. They would go around and meet artists in their studios and buy a print here and buy a piece there and live within their budget and their little apartment that they had. And then, of course, you know, decades later, they're one of the preeminent collectors of, uh, of American artists. 
and their collections worth millions, but they started with pennies. Yeah, but they didn't even – I don't think they knew how much their collection – I mean, they would store their paintings in the oven because they didn't use yeah, the they, oven. They, they, they would just, you know, <laughs> be like Hockneys and stuff. I mean, they, they had like major artists in their collection. Yeah. I love that story because they just loved doing it. And it was their little – it was their private – hobby, I guess. I don't know. They just loved, you know, when I lived in New York, they were very old and they, I would see them occasionally at openings because they were literally a small couple with raincoats and they they would come in and look at the art and everyone would fawn all over them. And they were just a sweet couple. Yeah. Yeah. Herb and Dorothy Vogel. Herbert Dorothy and Dorothy Vogel. Vogel. Shout out, shout out. That, yeah, because that's, I point to them a lot as an example for people who, you know, are maybe trying to think about how to how to participate, you know, and look no further than, uh, than, than Herb and Dorothy. Right, right. But, you know, here's another thing, like, and this is sort of a backhanded plug for the Photographic Arts Council that, that you know, we decided that we wanted to have younger people and like people students and academics and stuff to come and be part. So we instituted a, a level of a membership level at $50. So you could come and be part of the whole thing for just a really low amount of money because we're very interested in this democratization of art. We don't want it to be, feel elitist or to, I mean, it's like, again, I cycle back to the idea that it's a societal thing that, that's going to be hard to break. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. The way I've summarized the issue is that, you know, and I, I'm always thinking about from the artist perspective because we're right. artist centric, but it's like, you know, the issue isn't one of supply. The issue is one of demand, you know, so right. for artists to earn a living and, and have a you know good quality of life, we've got to stoke demand for their products. And that's a generational problem that starts, should mm-hmm. start in kindergarten you know, as we learn arts appreciation and as we learn to, you know, trust our aesthetic choices and trust our own taste. And, you know, in, you know, 30, 40 years, if we really had a kind of concerted effort to stoke appreciation, I would would guess, hopefully that that would improve the bottom line for artists. Right. But also, you know, like certain things are happening, like, and this is, we don't have time to get into this a whole other talk, but the whole idea of NFTs, which I'm sure you've read about the this is a great segue, actually, into because I my, I was going to save the last, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to talk to you about tech, what I call art tech or tech within the photography space. But please continue. Yes, I'm very familiar with NFTs. Yes. Yeah. So I'm sure you've talked about them before on your podcast, but NFT stands for non-fungible token, which is essentially like a digital version of a piece of art. And as far as it goes with photography, there are a lot of photographers who have minted, they call minted, it's like issue, a digital version of photographs that they have. And so if you were to buy one of those, and and this is the weird barrier because it's all about, you can't buy them with dollars, you have to buy them with cryptocurrency, which is, I think, the main stumbling block to the fact that they haven't gone where I think they should go. But anyway, you buy this piece, this photograph. And then you own the digital rights that you can print it out on your computer or whatever, or you can bring it to a a main, like a photography printer and have them make a beautiful copy of it and you can sell it. But when you sell it, it's, everything is recorded on the blockchain. Like everybody knows once you buy it, everybody knows where it is. It's like absolutely secure, the evidence of your ownership and where it is and how much you bought it for. If you want to, if I want to sell one to you, Scott, that's also recorded and the artist will get part of the money. It's kind of like ASCAP or like 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 with music where a song is played on the radio and the artist gets money for it. It's a, the closest thing. That's the closest real <laughs> non-NFT world parallel that I can come up with. But what I'm saying is that in terms of the democratization of art, that could be one of the roads. It could be one of the roads into you can acquire an NFT of a certain well-known photograph for not very much money, depending on how, you know, how the artist has structured the sale of it. But you can make this digital collection. And, and you know, it's a little bit strange to think of because you don't have, you know, the physical piece of paper in front of you. You have a, a record that you own, a digital copy of this. So for people who are acquisitive and people who want to actually have the piece of art in their hands, it might not be as satisfying, but 
On the flip side, if you're wanting to participate in the art world and you like the concept of digital art and digital ownership of something, it's a whole world for you. It's like, it's sort of a little bit like collecting Pokemon cards or something like that. The people collect, like to collect things, right? So this is a way of collecting a new version of art. And I know several artists who've made a lot of money off this, like selling their work as NFTs, which, it, but previous to that, it had only been, you know, hard copies that they're in frames. Yeah. You know, this whole conversation about technology is, is so fascinating because of course, let's go back right to back to the advent of digital photography period. Right. So suddenly, you know, quote unquote, real photographers are just, you know, disgusted and offended and dismissive, right. Of the digital camera, you know, famously, you know, Polaroid lost its way due to its arrogance and, you know, and so on and so forth. But now, 20 years on, we all have uh, high def cameras in our smartphones. Uh, we're all photographers now. And digital photography has earned respect, you know, it took a while, uh, maybe, but it's certainly, you know, more legitimate maybe now than it was 20 years ago. But now we have this next revolution with AI. Right. So, you know, as you I just heard this in passing the other day, I, I don't have the facts, but apparently there was a very kind of well-known you know, photography competition that recently awarded, you know, a prize to an AI generated photo. They didn't know, you know, and eventually it was revealed, I guess, that it was AI, you know, so. And, you know, and I'm not a catastrophist. I mean, you know, like it's very trendy now to say, you know, the sky's falling. You know, who knows? No one knows the future. But the point is, is that we have this amazing technology. And like with any new tools or technology, there's good things, maybe not so good things. We can build things. We can wreck things. You know, I don't know. But it's here and it's not going away. And I guess if you're an artist, you know, hopefully you think of this as another tool to collaborate and create and make art with on some level. But obviously it raises all kinds of interesting questions for, you know, for you and your work on the council and so on and so forth. So what say you about this revolution in AI as it starts to intersect with art and photography specifically? Well, I think it's really important to think about the fact that like the Lumiere brothers, when they kind of made up film and Daguerre when he was making photographs in the 1800s, 1830s and 40s, they were using, they were like, this is really cool technology. This didn't exist before. What is this? And let's see what we can do with it. And then Ansel Adams did, you know, printed his Moonrise Hernandez, New Mexico, like a hundred times to make with different technologies and different enlargers and different lighting. And each one of these photographers in every single generation has had a major technological advance. And each one of them, the ones that persisted, grabbed that the new technology and tried it and, and experimented with it and were interested in it. I think you brought up digital photography. That dissatisfaction with, with oh, that's not a real photograph. It's a digital photo. It doesn't look the same. That lasted even shorter amount of time than you mentioned. I mean, it was like people got over that really quickly. And um, and now, you know, everybody can take a beautiful picture of a flower. And now the task for the people who are in the academic side of things and, and reading photographs and explaining stuff is to show an Imogen Cunningham picture of wilting roses and the picture that you took on your iPhone and talk about the difference between them and why one achieves things that the other doesn't. In terms of AI, I know exactly the thing that you were talking about with that that photograph. It was a German photographer, and, and it was a beautiful photograph. It was two women, one standing in front of the other, looks like a mother and daughter, kind of like an adult daughter. And the photographer refused the prize. He's like, ha ha, I did this, right? It was like a little bit of a trick. But that said, it's incredible. I mean, he manipulated whatever, he put in whatever information the photographic generating software was going to he told it what to do, right? Right, right. And then, then it took the input and made, and using all the AI technology, made this photograph. I think we're just, it's going to be a, a matter of the people who are, are afraid of this have to pay very, very close attention to the sources of where the photograph comes from. Because, you know, there's no doubt that we're all going to be duped that that's a lost photograph of Ansel Adams or whatever it is. 
I'm kind of weirdly excited about it on, on all levels because, you know, from a writing level, there's, I've read a whole bunch of stuff that's been AI generated and there's something about it. And I'm going to put my finger on it. There's something about it that you can tell it's fake. You can tell it wasn't written by a person, whether it's errors or strange juxtapositions of words and stuff that it's with writing. I can so far have been able to tell with photography. I would not have known that was a fake photograph. So I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's a need to be afraid of it or more to like embrace it and see what people do with it. You know, it's kind of exciting in a, in a weird way. Well, it sort of begs the question, what is a photograph? Well, you know, that's a very, very good question. And that goes back not just to AI, but to regular photographs you see on a wall. Like I have, a, I have several, one room in my house, it's got filled with all what were sort of experimental pieces. And I've one by this artist named Marco Breuer, and it's a photographic piece of paper that is scraped with a wire brush. And it looks like exactly what I described. It's a white paper with scrapes down the middle of it, but it's considered a photograph because it was photographic materials. It was like the chemicals used to, to fix the photograph. It was the photographic paper. It was light, but it wasn't a photograph of anything. It was pressure on a piece of paper and that counts. And, you know, there are lots of people creating what they would often is referred to as photo objects that might not necessarily be an image of something, but might be some manipulated photographic process that counts as a photograph. So, you know, it's, it's just a lot there's a big horizon and it's, you know, it's sort of an ever growing horizon. Like it always has been in this particular field from the very beginning, because it was all just brand new. It's something that, that we created. Yeah. It's exciting. I mean, I, you know, like, like I said, I'm not one of these people that, you know, wants to, you know, shake my fist at the sky. You know, the world's always been a fucked up place. If you know a little bit of history, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when I talk to artists who, you know, might want to get caught up in the hysteria of it. You know, I, you know, guys, you know, like think of this as a collaboration tool, you know, a creative tool to collaborate and inspire. And, you know, it's. Uh, but don't you think it's also sort of people think of fields like this in terms of almost like a pyramid, like a cone or like a pyramid going up toward the, the achievement of perfection in mm, photography or perfection. Mm. And I honestly see it as like a cone, like the opposite, like it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more interesting and more expansive and, and wider and more interesting. I just said interesting twice, but, <laughs> but, but, um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's just getting, it's, it's sort of limitless. We can learn how the whole art form is going to grow. Right. And well, it's so accessible on so many levels in terms of, not just an opinion, people see photographs and they can form very quickly an idea of what they think of it. But also if as a collector, it's like, you know, in the art world, it has the lowest entry point for buying it, right? It's, you can get photographs for very low amounts of money compared to paintings and other. So it's very accessible to people. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, how the hell do you afford your collection. I mean, what do you do? Do you have a real job, Michael? Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> I work in the tangentially in the movie business. I make websites for big movies. Oh, very cool. So you're are you a coder or a writer or what? What do you? No, I work with a small group of guys. I, I'm um, I do content and site architecture for like big big movies. Big big movies. And, All right. Oh, anything <laughs> to, that, to feed, the, dumb, feed the monkey. A, <laughs> but that is like, I don't like doing that. <laughs> it doesn't take all that much time, but it's, it pays some bills. But mainly I, you know, I spent a lot of time doing stuff that I want to do. Like I figured it out. I figured out the time management so that I get to look at a lot of photos and, and travel as much as I can and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, because also this kind of a job is a remote job. You don't need to be right. in an office. Right. Well, you're a very kind of novel, idiosyncratic kind of upbringing, you know, traveling the world as a young man. You know, that I mean, that's priceless because it it just, you know, clearly, you know, has shaped uh, you and empowered you. And, you know, I, too, 
you know, at a young age for various reasons I won't go into, just, you know, I became entranced, you know, with the muse, you know, and I don't know that I would have used those words back then, but it was like, no, 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 no. Ooh, that's interesting. Let's go check that out. And, oh, wait, what, what's that over there? And let, you know, and it was, there was never a grand plan except to just do interesting, fun, creative shit and, and see right. where it right. takes me. Right? right. And, and it brought me here to you today, right. really, you know? Right. <laughs> no, but it's true. It's, you know, for all the background, I should have gone along a certain path and become a the corporate executive or something. But I worked in publishing, I worked in the movies, and I worked in the internet. And now I write for movies for the internet. So it's like I, I pulled all the strings, right? And so it was unexpected. But, you know, it started really it was hard in the beginning. I mean, like you buying your five, you're finding your $5 receipt. Like my page in the beginning and working in publishing in New York, my paycheck and my rent check were the same, you know, and I ate lentils <laughs> and I caught SATs at night. And it was, you know, it, it wasn't all gravy, but it was fun. Nick, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade. It. I wouldn't trade any of it. You know, I, any of it. The, like, you know, before college, I lived in like seven different countries, right? We moved every several years. But out of it, I speak foreign languages and I know how to get around and I like things like that. You know, it's, it's all cumulative and it's all just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, that is a super positive note to wrap up on, Michael Hawley. I am so, I mean, bigger and bigger and bigger. This is what we want and we want it now. And, you know, art helps us grow. It helps us get bigger. Right. It empowers the spirit and empowers, you know, our humanity and it needs to be prioritized. You know, I was joking with somebody the other day. It's like art is such an afterthought these days. It seems that like, even the educators that came up with the idea of STEM, then they realized a few mm -hmm. months, oh, wait, we forgot the art part. And then it became steam. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, right. We left out, you know, uh, we, we, we left out right. something important. But no, art right. is, you know, soul food and necessary for for empathy, I think, you know, and compassion even, and, you know, so, so, you know, celebrating our common humanity and the struggle that is real. But, you know, one of the things, uh, Michael, I, I, I can't let you go without, you know, asking you this question. Uh, may I come see your collection? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. Come on over. Right on. Right on. Well, I will do it. Had I realized you were in town, I, we would, I just would have come to you today. But yeah. now I'm super curious about this yeah. beautiful, still energy force that you've created with your collection. Thanks. Come over anytime. You know, it's it's on the walls for you to see. I can't wait. I, I'm a night owl. I'll be there around two in the morning. All right. <laughs> I leave the doors open. <laughs> so what's okay before we go, you know, in terms of your art life. What's next? What's on the horizon for you this summer? You've got some shows that you're going mm -hmm. to. What are you excited about? What art? By the way, name some artists you're excited about. Shout out. I just, well, actually, weirdly, I just bought a piece by this woman, Carrie Mae Weems, who's at the Getty right now. Unrelated to the show, I had purchased this piece. And the piece is actually not my, the image that I have is reproduced in the Getty show at the moment, which is kind of fantastic. There's this really wonderful Mexican artist that I bought named Tatiana Parcero, who's P-A-R-C-E-R-O. And she she does a really interesting work with codexes. She takes, takes you know, indigenous codexes of Mexico and it superimposes pictures of herself because she comes from, a, her heritage is a long time ago, Spanish, like conquistador Spanish, and also indigenous Mexican. And these codexes are reflecting both of those things. So her face over the piece, really, really interesting, interesting stuff. There's a really young artist named Evan Whale, who's represented here in Los Angeles by Tyler Park Presents, which is over in Silver Lake. And he does a lot of stuff with cool old um, processes like Kodachrome and also scrapes it. So he manipulates the images in, in a very interesting way. Those those two are the ones that I've most recently, or those three, most recently added to the collection. I have one right across the room here that I got recently by Andrea Chung, who's, she's a, I think she's from Jamaica originally, and her 
father was Chinese and her mother was Ghanaian. And her work is all about, I shouldn't put words in her mouth, but it's about misplacement of indigenous peoples in society, like people who were doing things that they were brought somewhere to do. Anyway, so those are a few of the pieces that I that I have up and coming people around. people to watch out for artists to watch out for. We right, love that, right. and anything anything right. we can do to help amplify and and promote their practice and their work. Uh, that's what we're here for. So thank you for sharing that, Michael. Oh, Michael, welcome. thank you for coming on, man. You're the best. <laughs> it's really fun. I love talking about this stuff. Absolutely. Well, you know, maybe if I get lucky, you'll come back on at some other point and and regale us with more great stories. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.